0: getting back on the horse here, all right, back on the horse in Mark chapter 6, and uh, we are going to cover some ground this morning. Believe it or not, we're going to, our goal is to make it from verse 1 all the way through verse 32, and some of you are saying, oh, really? Yes, really, we're going to do it. Um, Let's take the first section here. Beginning in verse 1, Mark chapter 6. And he went out from there, that is Jesus, and he came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And the many listeners were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him? And such miracles as these performed by his hands. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not these his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and his own household. And he could do no miracle except that he laid his hands upon a few sick people and healed them. And he wondered at their unbelief. And he was going around the villages teaching. Now, what is Jesus' hometown? Well, Jesus grew up in Nazareth. Now, we know that just previously, Jesus was in Capernaum. Capernaum is on the the, uh, western side of the Sea of Galilee, a northwestern corner, if you will. And Nazareth is just to the southwest of there, about 30 miles, about halfway between the Sea of Galilee and the Mediterranean Sea. And there, Jesus finds himself among his his family, the people that he grew up with. Verse 2, these people of Nazareth are astonished. They're astonished at the power and the wisdom that Jesus has. And it's interesting, however, this amazement is linked with doubt rather than faith. It's it's not simply skepticism about the facts. They were were clear about the facts. They they saw these miracles. They heard his wisdom. They were clear about the facts. But rather, this this doubt came from their insecurity, their personal insecurity that focuses those facts or interprets those facts according to me. How do they relate to me? Everything comes back to me. What about me? Is their question. Is Jesus better than I am? Well, who gave him greater power? Who gave him greater wisdom than me? Why? Why in the world should he have this power? Why in the world should he have this wisdom? And why not me? It's not fair. And jealousy rose up. Jealousy often follows that kind of question. And jealousy is nothing but judgment based upon my own insecurity, not the merits of the facts. Verse three they took offense. They took offense at him. The, the Greek word there is scandalizo. It sounds Italian, doesn't it? so yeah. It means a stumbling block or a, a trap, something to fall over. And, and that is how they responded to the facts on the ground. They took offense at him. Now, I wonder, does Jesus intend? Does he intend to offend them? Well, Matthew 17, verse 24, illumines this a little bit for us. Matthew 17, 24, and when they had come to Capernaum, those who collected the two drachma tax came to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? Now, what in the world is this two drachma tax? What is that? Well, it's interesting. It, it is a tax that was instituted in the time of Moses. In the time of Moses. And it was designed to help maintain the tabernacle. And so who is it that is asking this of, of them? It's the people who are involved in the worship of Yahweh, the almighty God. Does, he, does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? And... It's interesting that in verse 27 of that very same passage, Jesus says, But lest we give them offense, go to the sea and throw in a hook and take out the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a stater. Take that and give it to them for you and for me. Jesus, not wishing to offend them. He paid the tax not only for himself, but also for Peter. Guess where he got the money, though? That's pretty cool, isn't it? That's just a little side note. There just happened to be a miracle happen right there. But in this, we see that Jesus' intent is not to offend. However, the truth is that he did actually offend many especially when it came to speaking the truth. Very often, the revolution of truth sheds light on our sin, sin that is concealed by our our twisted logic, justifying bad behavior with logic that obscures and distorts reality. I mean, all we have to do is look at current events and see that that is going on all around us. Maybe you've heard the quote, I used my own money. It wasn't wasn't campaign funds to, to pay for the hush money. Therefore, it's all okay, right? Wrong. Wrong. What's the hush money about anyway? It's about covering up. Wrong. Matthew 15. Jesus Uh, unpacks this this for us in a unique way. Uh, Beginning in verse 1 of Matthew 15, Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem, saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And Jesus answered them. He answers them with a question. Get this. He says, and why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of his father or mother, let him be put to death. That's the law, right? But you say, whoever shall say to his father and mother, anything of mine you might have been helped by has been given to God. He is not... He is not to honor his father and mother. What? You mean depriving your elderly parents of the monetary support that they need because you say that that money belongs to God? That is justifiable? Jesus is pointing this out. No, this is is hypocrisy. He says, and thus you invalidate the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites, rightly did I say a prophesy of you, saying, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Skipping to verse 12. Then Jesus came and said to them, excuse me, then the disciples came and said to him, Jesus, um, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement that you made? And he answered and said, every plant which my heavenly father did not plant shall be uprooted. Sometimes Jesus spoke the truth, divided that which is truth from error and uncovered the fact that the, there is a process that people twist and turn to get around the truth. And in those moments, yes, indeed, the offense, you could say, was meant. I can get out of doing what's right, that of honoring my father and mother by supporting them, by saying that the money belongs to God. How twisted is that? It's like, it's, it's like tax evasion by hiding money in an offshore account, only it's worse. It's, it's using devotion to God as a quote-unquote tax shelter to avoid caring for your parents and calling it okay, right? Wrong. It is wrong. And Jesus points that out. And we too easily mislead others and, quite honestly, ourselves by discounting the simple truth with explanations of our best intentions or what we wish was true. Hmm. How many of you have noticed that here in the Phoenix area, people speed a lot? You know, there seems to be this logic that says, well, um, I can push the limit to about 10 miles an hour because the, the police won't stop me for anything under 10 miles an hour. Does any, does any of you think that way? Come on. Let's be honest here. Yeah, we push the limit and we, we twist We twist our thinking to to say it's okay for me to go 54 in a 45, but the law is what it is. Now, that kind of twisted logic is what's going on even in this place here in Nazareth, where people are offended by the truth of Jesus doing what he does healing and speaking with the Lord's wisdom. Matthew 11. We see here um, another another section or another view of of this, uh, beginning in verse two. Now, when John was in prison, and heard the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the expected one? Or shall we look for someone else? And Jesus answered and said to them, go, go and report to John what you hear and see, what is plainly evident. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he, who keeps from stumbling over me. In other words, blessed is he who sees reality for what it is and does not avoid the truth. Back in Mark chapter 6, verse 5. It's interesting to me that, that Mark records here these words and he could do no miracle there. And then he adds the words, "except he healed a few." I, I just find that kind of comical. He could do no miracles there, well, except he healed a few. If any of us were in the in the room there, we would say, "Wait a second, this—he's still healing, right? And that's still amazing." I. I I like the way Matthew records it in chapter 13. He says, and they took offense at them, verse 57, but Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And then Matthew records these words, and he did not do many, many miracles there because of their unbelief. He did not do. Not He could not do. I, I think it's important to understand that, that the sovereignty of God is not limited simply by our unbelief. Okay? It's as, as if to say that God can't do something because I'm getting in the way. How big do you think you are? God is still sovereign. But it's interesting here that Unbelief. Unbelief is at work. Unbelief and its undoing. Previously in Mark, in chapter 5, we read the story of the, the woman uh, with the issue of blood. Verse 32, you can flip back to it if you'd like. And he, that is Jesus, looked around to see the woman who had done this or the person who had touched him. Remember, we we heard the story about Jesus experiencing power that had gone out from him. He looked around to see the woman who had done this. But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, that is that she was healed, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Flipping forward in Mark to chapter 10, we see the story of blind Bartimaeus. Verse 51 of chapter 10 of Mark. And answering him, Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabboni, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he regained his sight and began following him on the road. The writer of Hebrews puts this all in perspective for us in chapter 11, verse 6, where he writes, Without faith, it is impossible to please him. That is God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Faith is a big deal. Faith is a big deal in in not the Lord's ability to do marvelous works. Because he's, a, he's a able to do anything he wants, whenever he wants. He's sovereign, right? But he looks for faith in those who, who wish to receive a blessing from him. And in that faith, there is delivered indeed what they ask. They ask in faith. Back in, in Mark chapter 6, we see in verse 6 that the people are amazed or that, excuse me, that Jesus is amazed at their unbelief. He's amazed. How in the world, where did this unbelief come from? It's curious to me, there's, a, there's an interesting, I think, an interesting comparison. These people who were very familiar to Jesus and familiar with him, lived in unbelief, perhaps because of the commonness of of seeing Jesus, growing up with him. But Jesus encountered a centurion. Matthew 8, we we see the story of the centurion who comes to Jesus and he says, "My, "'My servant is ill.'" And I, I need for you to heal him. Come and heal him. And, 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 and Jesus says, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll go with you. And he says, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm not worthy to have you step into my house. I'm, I'm a man under authority. And I, and I know that if I say to, to one, go, he'll go. And if I say to another, come and he'll come. If I say to my servant, do this, he does it. And the, the assumption there on the part of this, the centurion, a, 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 a Gentile, not one who honored the Lord, his assumption is that all you have to do is say the word, Jesus, and, and he'll be healed. And, and, and Jesus is equally amazed there. He says, truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith among anyone in Israel. Here is, an, here is a, a Gentile who has not walked with God and yet his faith is exemplary. And now we have Jesus standing before these people in his hometown who are who are riddled with unbelief. How does that happen? How, how does these people who should know deal with unbelief? Well, it's not a lot different than, than the people of Israel. Having experienced the the, the incredible miracles Uh, that led to their release from captivity, having seen the the Lord's provision for them in the middle of a wasteland, and yet they found themselves in this cycle of unbelief over and over and over again. It's it's kind of like the frog in the kettle. You've heard that analogy, right? Put the frog in the kettle... How do you keep it in there? Well, you just turn up the heat little by little. And he gets cooked a little by little. Doesn't get out because it's just happening very slowly. It happens in our lives too. Things crop up in our lives slowly, slowly, slowly. And soon we become accustomed to them and we don't recognize God for who he is in the moment. We, um, we live in Arizona and, and there's pretty, some pretty dramatic landscapes in our, in our state, right? All you have to do is, is drive north a little bit. and You see the, one of the, the great natural wonders of the world, the Grand Canyon. And those who look over the edge for the first time think, wow, that's incredible. How in the world? I can't believe this. And... We who live here. I've I've met people who live here who've never even been to the Grand Canyon. It's it's commonplace. It's just it's just commonplace for us. We don't recognize the wonder for what it is because it's just normal. And I think that's what was happening there in Nazareth. Now. We're going to shift a little bit here. Uh, Verse 7. It's interesting. um, Here, Jesus begins to send out the 12. Read with me chapter 6 of Mark, verse 7. And he summoned the 12 and began to send them out in pairs. And he was giving them authority over the unclean spirits. And he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belt. Oh, but to wear sandals. It's kind of like mom saying, be sure to put your shoes on. But he, and he added, do not put on two tunics. And he said to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. And any place that does not receive you or listen to you as you go out from there, shake off the dust from the soles of your feet, for a testimony against them. And they went out and preached that men should repent. And they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick and healing them. Verse seven Jesus summoned them. The Greek word there means simply to call one to uh, call others to oneself to bid them come, but it's curious because it includes um, the connotation of a contract being established. In other words, entrusting someone else with a job to do. I'm calling you to myself to tell you what I need you to do. And there's a, a... Kind of a contract established there because the expectation is that you will do what I ask of you. Turn with me to the right just a little bit. Mark chapter 8, verse 1. Here we have the story of the feeding of the 4,000. And Jesus, Jesus imparts these words. And calling him, them to himself, uh, excuse me, in those days again, there was a great multitude and they had nothing to eat. He called his disciples and said to them, I feel compassion for the multitude because they have remained with me now three days and have had nothing to eat. You see what's happening here? Jesus calls, Jesus calls them to himself and he expects that they will have the same compassion for the people that Jesus has for them. That's included in that idea of calling. Turn over a couple more pages. Chapter 10. Chapter 10, verse 42. And calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that these who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Jesus calls them to himself, and then he says these words. His intention is to connect the dots with them that when you lead, you serve. You don't lord it over others; you serve. He's imparting that to them as as uh, and, and the expectation is that they will they will take that in and make it their own. They will repeat that in their own lives. Turn over a couple more pages to Mark chapter 12, verse 41. And he sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the multitude were putting money into the treasury. And many rich people were putting in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. And calling, there's our word again, and calling his disciples to him, he said to them, truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. For they all put in out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty put in all she owned, all she had to live on. Here again, Jesus is calling them to himself. This is a teaching moment. He's imparting to them this expectation that, that giving all that you are is what true devotion is all about. So So I think it's it's instructive here for us to to understand that when we we talk about calling, I'm called to this, I'm called to that. What does that mean? Well, when Jesus calls, he's he's his expectation is that his character, his view of how things should be will become your own. It's not, it's not just the doing of a job, it's the imparting of his character, of his wisdom, his good pleasure to be worked out from your life. Now, back in Acts, or excuse me, back in Mark chapter 6, that's where we're at, right? He called them. He summoned them. What did he ask them to do? He said, He's calling them to go. It's interesting that the divine call of God very often in, includes the going. And the going is, is that of entrusting men to preach the gospel. We see this in Acts chapter 13. And, and the calling of, of Paul and Barnabas. There in verse 2 we read and while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting the holy spirit said set apart for me barnabas and saul for the work to which i have called them now that that calling is like we've said is the imparting of god's of jesus wisdom his view of things his power All of that is imparted to them in the calling. Verse 7 back in Mark, he sent them out in pairs. It's interesting, if we look at Luke chapter 10, we see another sending, and there we read of 70. Seventy that were sent out in pairs ahead of him. And and this is curious to me. Luke records there, Now after this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to come. He sent them out in pairs. I think that's perhaps because of accountability, maybe for safety. But he sent them out ahead of him to every city and place that he was planning to go. Jesus had a strategy in this sending. It was a distinct plan, not some random improvisation. Jesus had a plan. Now, they were sent out with authority over unclean spirits. It's interesting to me that he, he uses the word unclean here back in mark chapter 6 now there were some that word unclean can be mean uh, a number of different things ceremonially unclean is one thing over unclean spirits that means that they could they could minister to people who were in situations that would would be considered unclean and untouchable, they could minister to those kind of people and have authority, even over that uncleanliness. We see that in the life of Jesus, don't we? We see the leper coming to Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He touches the leper. Here's a man who's not been touched probably for years, and Jesus touches him because he has authority over that uncleanness. He imparts that very same authority to his disciples. We have to also recognize that it has to do with the demonic. In, in Mark 5, we saw the, the man who came out of the tomb in the, in the Gerasenes, And there the scripture records that he had an an unclean spirit. And it's clearly demonic. So they have authority over that as well. And they're called to heal. They're called to preach. And suddenly they become apostles. The word apostle means sent one. The one who is sent. We'll see that at the end of this in, in verse uh, 30. They're called apostles there after they have been sent out. Jesus' assumption here now is that they, as they go, the, the assumption is that people are free to accept or reject their message. Acceptance means um, it includes the idea of hospitality, of a welcoming in. Make yourself at home. The same is true today. Our acceptance of Jesus means make yourself at home in my life, Lord. Make yourself at home. You can go to the refrigerator and get out whatever you want. You can go to, um, to, to come and go as you wish out the front door, the back door, it doesn't matter. You make yourself at home. You can find yourself into every nook and cranny of my life. Make yourself at home, Lord. That's what acceptance of this message means. Rejection, however, is interesting here. Jesus says the way you deal with rejection is, hey, don't waste your emotional energy on this. Okay? Shake the dust off and and move on. Verse 8, he says, take take, uh, nothing with you but a staff. I think it's simply practical. It's a walking stick, right? Keep yourself from stumbling. Oh, and don't forget to put your shoes on. Wear sandals. Because it's you're gonna be walking a lot. And and by the way, don't take two tunics. Just what is a tunic? Well, a tunic is an inner garment. Kind of like uh, like today we'd maybe call it a t-shirt or something like that. He says don't 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 take two, take one. Why? Well, be, because those who wore two tunics uh, very often were, were thought to be wealthy or putting on, putting on the ritz, you know? And Jesus says, be common. Be common among them. Stay a while, verse 10. Um, Enter. Verse 11, if there's no reception there, just shake it off and move on. Verse 12, they went and preached. And what did they preach? They preached repent. What does repent mean? The Greek word is metaneo, a change of mind, a turnaround. That's what they're preaching. It's important that you turn around. And verse 13, they were casting out demons, anointing with oil, and healing. What, all of this, all of this is the, the, the picture of they were carrying out the ministry of Jesus himself. Again, we go back to the idea of calling. He called them and imparted to them the power to carry out the very ministry of Jesus himself. Now Mark, let's go to verse 14. This is a long section that could be considered kind of parenthetical in this this passage because we we see here the sending out and then he continues all the way in verse 30 with with, uh, the coming back and reporting. But here in this section, we, it's kind of parenthetical. Uh, it stands alone in, in, in some ways. But what, we've, what we saw in Nazareth, Nazareth was unbelief, right? And curiously enough, here in this section, we see belief. Herod himself, verse 14, and King Herod heard of it. For his name had been well known, and people were saying, "John the Baptist has risen from the dead," and that's why these miracle, uh, these miraculous powers are at work with him, uh, in him. It's interesting. Herod had heard of it. Jesus' ministry was overt; it was not covert, it wasn't hidden. Even Herod heard of it. Verse fifteen. But others were saying he is Elijah, and others. Uh, And others were saying he is a prophet like the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he kept saying, John, John, whom I beheaded, has risen. For Herod himself had sent out and had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. He's haunted He's haunted by his guilt, the consequence of his sin. Verse 17. Did I read that already? I did, right? Uh, for, verse 18. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him that is John, and wanted to put him to death and could not do so. For Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and a holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. That's curious, isn't it? And a strategic day came. When Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his lords and military commanders and the leading men of, of Galilee, and when the daughter of Herodias herself came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. And the king said to, to the girl, Ask me for whatever you want, and I will give it to you. There's a big ditch right there, right? And he swore. He's digging it even deeper right here. And he swore to her, whatever you ask of me, I will give it to you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. This girl didn't know what she was getting into, did she? And immediately she came back in haste before the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me right away the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And although the king was very sorry, yet because of his oaths and because of his dinner guest, he was unwilling to refuse her. Here is a man who believes. He sees the power of God at work in Jesus, believes that it's John the Baptist risen from the dead. He believes in the power of God, but here his pride limits his capability to receive that truth. Verse 27, and immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back John's head, and he went out and had him beheaded in the prison, and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother, and when his disciples heard about this, they came and took away his body and laid it in a tomb. Again, this kind of is presented as a parenthetic great big parentheses in this story. But it's it's important for us that, that we understand that belief is not enough. Belief, you can believe uh, uh, and see the power of God, believe it is the power of God, but you can also you can also nullify the power of God in your own life by by being too proud to recognize and to yield to that power. He was sorry. The king was sorry for his stupidity, but too proud to make a change. Let's go on to verse 30. I told you we would get here. And the apostles gathered together with Jesus and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. And he came and he said to them, come away by yourselves to a lonely place and rest a while. For there were many people coming and going, and they did not even, they did not even have time to eat. And they went away in a boat to a lonely place by themselves. Take note, verse 30, they are called apostles now. The reason they are called apostles is because they had been sent out and they gathered together. It's important that we understand the the importance of gathering together. In the body of Christ, there are no lone rangers. We're one body. We have many parts, but we're one body. Paul Paul describes that in 1 Corinthians 12 in, in in a wonderful, wonderful way. There's unity among us, and yet there is great diversity of gifts. There's commonality. There's commonality among us, but there is great variety as well. Come away, he says. Come away by yourselves and rest a while. Come away to this secluded, secure place. Come away yourselves. It's interesting to me that it is uh, plural, yourselves, not come away by yourself. Again, there is that, that belonging to one another, that needing and depending upon one another. And rest a while. Acknowledge your frailty. Acknowledge your humanity. And verse 32 is very interesting to me as well. They went away in a boat. Not so long ago, that boat was a place of fear. Not so long ago, they encountered a storm in that boat. But now, instead of fear, that boat is a place of solace, a secluded place of renewal. So in Nazareth, we start with unbelief. And we hear the call of God to, to, make, uh, to send those out to preach repentance. And then we see in the story of Herod, we see belief. Now here in this, these last couple of verses, we see uh, the work of faith that God has done through these now he calls his apostles. There's a lot to pack in there. The big deal is this. Do we want to be counted among those who are so familiar with the things of God that we live in unbelief? No. That's a good answer. No. Do we want to be counted among those who believe but don't obey? No. We want to be counted among those who respond in faith. And God is able to do marvelous things to impart his very ministry to us as we walk in faith. Let's pray together. Lord, this morning, we confess to you that um, you, when you call us, the truth is many of us um, don't know exactly what that means. But we thank you that when you do so, Lord, you impart to us, we, you impart to us your wisdom, your character, your very ministry. And we want to be those who respond in faith to allow you to do your transformative work, not only in us, but also in those that, that we touch. We know you to be a good, good God. And we thank you, Lord, that you desire to impart your goodness to us. We thank you, Lord, that in your almightiness, you also know our frailty. You also know our deep need. You know who we are. In light of that, Lord, we come to you this morning and say In faith, Lord, call us, use us as you wish.